Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning, everybody. So great to be together here in our living room, in your living rooms. We can be in a lot of locations and be one family because Jesus binds us together. So excited to see a number of you more each week that I I haven't seen in months and months. It's been so encouraging as we find our way back to um, some new normal. You know, we spent January, as we typically do, focusing on our own personal relationship with Jesus and renewing that at the start of the year. We used, as you probably know, the 23rd Psalm as our scripture entry point for that awakening priority. And in verse 5 came to the familiar but deep waters verse that says, you have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so that table, that banquet table, is a metaphor woven throughout scripture for the kingdom of God. And we launched accordingly a spin-off series, you know, like Joni Loves Chachi spun off of Happy Days for you old timers, or like The Mandalorian spun off of Star Wars, right? A spin-off series focusing on the banquet table. And how this works, because this is who we are as a church, unity in Jesus, it's in our name, and I believe it's what it means to be Jesus's church here at Denver United or otherwise, and so that's what we're into this month, and typically in February, we gather around the vision of our church and refresh and reinstall and renew that vision because, as you know, vision leaks, values drift. If we don't refresh what it is that we're about, we wake up somewhere along the way and realize we've drifted to be about some entirely different things. So here we find ourselves, the banquet table is our series. In John chapter 17, we left off here last week. Jesus, on the night before he died on the cross, was praying. And he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, you know, Peter, James, John, etc., but for thee, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. And that's us, the future of his church. He says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to be one as you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. And we give our focused attention to your word now, and this is our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as I was reflecting on these verses and this idea over the last week, my mind wandered to that early 21st century, 2000s decade TV series, Lost. Did anyone else watch Lost? Did anyone else watch Lost for the first five seasons and then get totally lost? 
when it kind of started floating through time. Uh, maybe it jumped the shark, as the sort of culture sophisticates say. Uh, but in the first five seasons, it was fantastic anyway, right? And then they end and find out it was all a dream sequence or something. Um, but whatever. The, the, and if that's a spoiler, sorry, statute of limitations has run out. You missed the boat. The premise of loss that was so compelling, the tension came about because these poor, hapless castaways survived a plane crash to find themselves on this mysterious and spooky tropical island. It was kind of like a dark twist on Gilligan's Island, you know? And um, quickly upon their living there, they started to discover what they called the others. And that's where the tension came about, right? In addition to the scary smoke monster in the, in the forest, there were these others, but you don't get glimpses of them as they pass through the camera. And so they, there was always the, the creepy music and they were all freaked out about the others and trying to figure out they're not alone on this island and what do these sinister inhabitants want from them. And then of course you find out somewhere along the way that the others aren't creepy and scary at all. They're simply the people who were seated on the back half of the plane when it passed over this mysterious magnetic field of doom and broke in half and then landed at two different places like six or seven miles apart on the island. So to the ones who landed on the beach, these scary foreboding others were those they discovered who actually were just like them people that got on a plane in Sydney bound for Los Angeles. But then you find out that all the while, the people who were on the back half of the plane and landed somewhere off in the jungle, they thought the ones on the beach were the others. And they were equally scared of them and trying to plan out how they were gonna fight them and defend themselves in their way of life such as it was on the beach or in the forest until they finally come together and realize they're all just people trying to survive this unlikely ordeal. And as far-fetched as the concept of loss otherwise was, this premise is very real, is very human. Our title this morning is The Others. And don't we instinctively find ourselves doing just the same thing? I have given them, Jesus said, the glory that we share. Talking to God, you, me, the Holy Spirit, we share this complex glory that looks like three distinct and eternally coexistent persons comprising one Godhead. We share this glory, this complex, hard to wrap our minds around, different yet one glory. And he said, Father, what glory you and I have experienced along with the Holy Ghost, I'm giving to them. So that out of their vast differences, out of the complexities of all their journeys and all their stories and all the different places where they find themselves, that they too might be one and show the world what I'm like. I made them after all, we did in our image. And that's what we talked about last week. So the question this leads us to, if we're going to authentically pursue the work of unity and not just put it on the sign and in our name and then go about our business by the path of least resistance, what this leads us to is a practical conundrum. And that is, what does it take for a group of people to experience that 
perfect unity that Jesus prayed for, that he himself with the other two members of the Trinity experienced perpetually. Luke chapter 13, as we read last week, finds Jesus ratifying this banquet table metaphor for the kingdom. You know, some metaphors that we use in scriptures feel like a stretch. This one is a safe bet because Jesus said, no, no, actually the kingdom of heaven is like a feast that a king has and invites a bunch of people too. So he sort of takes the, the guesswork out of it here. And in that parable, he concludes by saying, people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and will take their places in the feast in the kingdom of God. They will come and take their places. Now, I've never not believed this. I can't remember a time that I didn't understand that this was a metaphor for the church. But here's how I think I understood it in the context of my culture. People will come from all over. The East and the West, those are sort of metaphors for the different places that people find themselves, right? They'll come from their places of distinction, the nations by which they group. They'll come from all over, from vast and varied backgrounds, journeys, and stories, and they'll come and take some of our places at the kingdom, at the banquet table. So um, go ahead, friends. Scooch on over, make some room. Or better yet, you know what? We're really into this thing. We bought into diversity. You, you, you guys already ate early. You guys, you go sit at the kids' table. Give them your seats. We're noble. We're committed. So here, you have a couple of our seats. Where you don't have to scooch in and squeeze between us. Take a couple of our seats. That's, nobody said it. Nobody ever preached that. But that's what I grew up thinking the kingdom of heaven meant. Me and mine... You know, Jesus looked like me, according to all of the European artistic depictions. So it's our table. And I mean, you can hate me for this, but the fact is I've spent my entire life stuck inside of a white male. So it's just my journey. And so what Jesus reveals here, kind of hidden in plain sight, is they're not coming to take our places. They're coming to take their own. And I think the upshot of this is that there is no unity without equity, without understanding ownership. We're not doing anyone any favors. There is a kingdom, friends, of which we are the center, but it is not the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom many of us, too many of us, sadly, spend too much of our lives unwittingly building, or perhaps intentionally so. But the kingdom of God is something entirely different from that. The others, they have as much right to be here as I do. Others' experiences and stories are just as valid as mine. Philippians chapter two makes this clear. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It is what it means to sit at Jesus' table, to be aware of my own story, 
to embrace my journey and find Jesus in it, but also to be aware of my sister and my brother's story, of their journeys, and to embrace Jesus in it as well and recognize that it is one and the same Jesus that's bringing us all to this table together. Ephesians 5 Paul goes on to say, moreover, don't just take an interest in their story and recognize that their story is valid, but submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, what's fascinating about this is I think I've understood this to mean submit to one another out of reverence for one another to the extent that or insofar as one another deserves your submission, which puts us in the perpetual judgment seat. I'm going to be righteous do what Jesus asked me to do sitting at his table and constantly be evaluating your story for worthiness of my submission. If your story, if your experience, if your journey makes sense to me or resonates with my experience of Jesus, then I will submit to you out of reverence to you because you are noble and worthy of my mutual submission because I'm such a good Christian. So the tacit explanation went. But what the scriptures say is submit to one another not out of reverence for one another at all, but out of reverence for Christ. So that takes from us the burden of judgment for one another's story. How valid is your experience of Christ? That's not mine to decide. As it turns out, Jesus made clear he will judge his church, and I think he's gonna do an okay job of it. Jesus not only said, don't worry about doing that for each other, he said, don't. Remember Mater? What did I tell you about judging to not to? That's kind of what he said. But to submit to one another out of Christ's reverence, out of honor for the one whose table it is, who brought us together because he is constantly worthy. And there's a humility that's baked into that. You hear it in the way we talk about kids, Right? I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a culture in the Northeast that it was commonly understood that kids were to be seen and not heard. They were less than, they were less valuable. And there's probably some social practicality to that, but the message was loud and clear. You don't really matter until you can contribute to a conversation at the level of intellect that our conversation currently holds. But in Jesus' church, it's not like that. Jesus said, let the children come to me, don't hinder them. The, one of the few times Jesus became indignant with not the Pharisees was when his own disciples were keeping the kids from the table. Around here, we try to speak like Jesus. From the very beginning, you've heard my wife say, children are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. We don't perform childcare back there. We perform discipleship in an age-appropriate context. Those who serve our kids are the greatest heroes among us because they're the most socially intelligent teachers of the Bible to be able to translate that Christian discipleship to a seven-year-old. You see it in the way that so many of us, for one reason or another, are either health vulnerable or work in a, in a space where we have to be extra vigilant with our health or we're caring for people who are elderly or vulnerable themselves in health. And so... The church didn't say, hey, those of you that that's your jam, we'll see you maybe early, mid 2021. We bent over backwards and spent a lot of money that we didn't know we were gonna have in order to do this and this and some heroes of faith doing this. I'm talking about the guys that are making you able to see me right now. You just can't see them. I can see them. You can see me. I'm pointing, they're right there. They're literally like 
four feet from you all. This was what the church does when people are other. And so I'm not telling you you're wrong and standing up here scolding you. I'm telling you you're right. I'm reminding you of who you are. I'm holding up a mirror that looks like the word of God and saying, this is you. This is what it means to be us. That's a good place to say amen. If George were preaching, you would have said amen without instruction. I'm jealous. There are no outsiders. There are no second-class citizens in Jesus' kingdom. Did you know that? So there's one version of equity. We said that there's no unity without equity, without recognizing ownership. And there's one version of equity that goes something like this. Let's all just call it good and start fresh at the table together. You know, it's kind of like the let bygones be bygones philosophy. And I've seen this and done in the name of equity. We're gonna start now giving everybody their own seat, but we'll just all call the past good. Can we just do that? Can we just agree to be as okay about the past as I am? That's kind of what we're saying without saying it, right? That is unequal, that's unequally distributed. And unequal equity is like jumbo shrimp. It's no equity at all. Micah chapter six famously reads, God has shown you people, humanity, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. He did not leave it to guesswork. He did not leave it to scholarly debate. He's made it plain and unambiguously clear. And here's what it is. You know it. Say with me. To do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And so here's the way I think sometimes this plays out. We skim over the justice or we say that we we reduce justice to mean make sure we reduce justice to criminal justice, you know? the most elementary understanding of it. Like make sure that the guilty are condemned and the innocent are acquitted. And then get on to the gospel stuff, which is to love mercy and walk humbly with God. And we go all in on the mercy. Have mercy on me, man. I mean, I am stuck inside of a white male and I've known what I've known and been able to access what I've been able to access. Have mercy on me. Can we just all start now and have, here, you got your seat, I got mine. We all have equity at the table. And that sounds good, but ultimately it is un just. And if there is no unity without equity, I would suggest scripture makes clear there is no equity without justice. To do justice and to love mercy. So when there's a ditch on this side of the road that kind of skims over the justice or euphemizes and reduces it and then camps out in the loving mercy, because it's all Jesus, man. It's all good. It's all washed in the blood. It's all forgiven. We make Christian t-shirts that are campy and go get sold at the same place as the Footprints poem and and we, we live in that space. Sorry if you're wearing that t-shirt. Totally love that. Or the ditch on the other side of the road that, that loves justice. He doesn't say love justice because if you've been around the camp that loves justice, it's like justice and then like pound you to the ground. He said, do justice, love mercy. Merely this, don't leave justice undone in your haste to get to mercy or there is no true equity and without equity, there is no authentic unity. Here's what Isaiah 42 teaches, behold my servant 
whom I uphold. This is, of course, a messianic prophecy. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, this is normally where this verse starts getting read. He will not cry, and you're like, oh, yeah, I recognize this verse. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's merciful, he's kind. A bruised reed he won't break, a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. That's my. Messiah, that's Jesus. Now you're preaching. But listen to what it is ensconced in, this revelation of the Messiah. Before it, he says, I put my spirit upon him so he will bring forth justice. And right after it, that Messiah, that merciful one, that kind one who won't snuff out the smoldering wick, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. There is no equity. There is no unity without justice. And friends, this is, I understand, the teeth of unity. And this is the controversy. Up until this point in this message, it's the feel-good message of the year. It's like, where the, it's the one, I grew up going to church. I've sat in those seats longer than I've stood up here. And it's the one where you can kind of sit back and get comfortable and like, oh yeah, this is what we believe. We're in, we're with you, man. It's the, you relax and, and you smile naturally. And then you get to justice. And this is when we start to tense up, right? This is when our fi- smile gets a little wrinkled and our forearms get a little tight. Why? Because this speaks, this crosses into a lane. This, this whispers of things so, sociological and political. This pushes on some core beliefs that maybe we don't even know we have or don't know how core they are. You know those core files that like when you try to access them in your computer, it makes you enter the original password twice, the one that you forgot when you set the computer up and they did that on purpose. So you'd have to like go find where you wrote it down and then enter it and then enter it again. And then you can unlock the little lock and get into those files. Do you know those files? Have you done that? I think they don't want you going into them on purpose. The point is that those are like the core files. Those are the programs that to a casual user of the computer should be invisible. I think we all have core files like that. And it seems that when we get to justice, it gets tense because it starts crossing into or opening up those core files. And listen, I say this without any desire to throw the grenade on the table. This has been a tender year for me too. And no, I'm not trying to shrink our church. But it occurs to me that political tension and our raison d'etat unfortunately intersect. Like the church you go to is called Denver United. Like it's in the name. This is what we do. And if it happens that we wake up and find ourselves in a year where that is tense, I'm gonna try to address it as lovingly and tenderly as God gives me the grace, but we're not gonna sidestep around it because we don't wanna make anyone politically uncomfortable or what happens is we wake up and found that we were seeking second the kingdom of God. And I will not do that. 
And I don't think I'd be a very good pastor to you if I did. Aren't we talking, when we talk about justice, it's a word that's also used. It's been co-opted and become primary in its American usage in, in political debate, right? Justice means social justice, which means the left, which has some of you standing up and cheering and others of you standing up and, and whatever the opposite of cheering is in political terms, booing, right? Um, and the point isn't to, to, to speak into that. I'm not talking about justice as the term has been defined or hijacked by American politics. I'm talking about justice as the term is defined by the gospel. And if we can't talk about that without getting nervous, then that's an indicator of Jesus' place in our priority structure. I'm suddenly conscious of how quiet I have made this room. Somebody have a joke or something? <laughs> Isaiah chapter one, learn to do good, scripture reads. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Oh wait, I know this verse, this is about the gospel. Right, come now, let's see, how can we, let's figure out how we can possibly do that impossible task of seeking justice. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Ah, familiar ground, this is the gospel. Can we just stick there? Yeah, absolutely. What we can't do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. He took our crimson souls and washed them white as snow. He redeemed us and restored us or is restoring us to the ways and the purposes for which he created us. And part and parcel to those ways and those purposes, learn to do good, seek justice. This is how the gospel plays out in your life. I've experienced justice to be dismissed because it snaps to a political grid, and I've also experienced justice to be diminished and to be understood chiefly in the context of criminal justice, as I mentioned. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, okay, good. We're, we're going to make sure that we, we live in a... In a country with the rule of law where we continue to strive for, um, you know, for judicial system reform. But at the end of the day, we want to convict the guilty, acquit the innocent, check that block. Let's get on to the gospel now. If um, Isaiah chapter one here paints justice in a much broader context, it has primarily in the gospel not to do with criminal justice, but to do with caring for the oppressed with giving voice to the voiceless, with dignifying the undignified. The references to justice are at least five to one, helping those who are weak to every other understanding of it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul puts a New Testament stamp on this truth. We urge you, brothers and sisters, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, 
and be patient with everyone. Help those who are weak. Encourage those who are disheartened. Be patient with them. If their expression of disheartenedness, if the manifestation of that weakness is that they express gratitude inadequately for you, or there's a sharp edge to their tone, be patient with them. I'm not saying, I don't think that, I think I should say the scripture doesn't seem to be saying, call it all good, but be patient. Understand that the things that led to their being disheartened, to their chronically experiencing injustice, might come out a little sharp or shrill. Be patient. So we have to pause and address the elephant in the room. Are we saying now that ethnic minorities are weak? Help those who are weak? Is that what you're saying, Rob? Of course not. But the experience I've had over the last 12 years of pastoring a congregation that is made up of brothers and sisters of a variety of ethnic backgrounds is not that they're weak at all. I would say of the brothers and sisters that I know in our church family and the dozen scores coming on hundreds of conversations I've had with them, I would say these are some of the strongest people I know. They've had to develop strengths as I've understood their story that I haven't had to develop. It's their voice. It's their voice I've heard it told to me that has been weak. It's their ability to speak up for themselves, not because they can't speak or are inarticulate, but because the current of our culture is so swift that their voice is comparatively weak. And so scripture says, defend them. Speak up for those who can't or who, whose context renders them unable to speak up for themselves. Ephesians chapter four says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. Make every effort to keep yourselves united like this. And I think the question may be, are we willing to make some efforts? Lots of us are probably willing to make many efforts to keep ourselves united in the spirit until we get to that one effort that requires that we unlock the core files, that presses on something that we have deemed inviolable, perhaps without even knowing it. And then we stop short of making that effort. And here's what the word of God says, make every effort. Make the efforts that are comfortable and easy to do. Make the efforts that take a step out of your comfort zone and generate some applause from society around you. Make the efforts that really lead to some sacrifice. And then make the efforts that feel like they cost you what has seemed most central. Make every effort. Unity asks us to be willing to listen to others, even when we think we disagree, even when we know we disagree. And we're pretty certain that the premise of what they have to say is just flat out wrong.
I came uh, from a church where I served for a number of years uh, with a wonderful community of people who were mostly like me in background. To no fault of our own, it's just where we found ourselves. And um, in my formative years as a pastor, I had an experience one time that stuck with me where, um, and I want to share, share this as honoringly as possible. Uh, there was a family, it was a single mom with a number of children, um, and her struggle had to do with um, ability to access um, social welfare, the, the, the uh, government assistance, which she at the time was depending on. And uh, what I experienced, what I observed, was consternation to the point of unwillingness to shepherd or pastor this family because the conviction, the core file, said welfare is not the right way. Now, that's not to say the people who thought that are bad people or that they aren't compassionate. They're very compassionate. I was one of them. I am one of them, right? Um, they had an economic, a socioeconomic philosophy, kind of crosses into politics, that said that welfare doesn't generate the right kind of help, that there's other ways to do that. I, my point isn't to take that on one way or the other. In that core belief, though, in that core file, there was a block to being able to shepherd this family in compassion. And brothers and sisters, that ought not to be. And I share that not to shame anyone, but to illuminate or try and illustrate this very delicate point. Judging the veracity or viability of somebody else's experience is not only not necessary, it is forbidden. How quick we are to judge, to say based on my deeply established and passionately held social, economic, political convictions, you're wrong. That's not our role. Jesus will judge his church. He'll sort that out. So uniting across the spectrum sounds good. Easy in an inspo message, killer in practice, especially when you're trying to do it in 2020, coming into 2021, where we're all raw. Living with Jesus in family. How does this play out in family? I don't know where it ends. It's a lifelong pursuit, but I, I'm pretty sure of where it begins. There is no unity without equity, and there is no equity without justice. And justice, it's many layered. It goes on for a long time, but it begins with empathy. Justice begins with empathy, with giving you what God has endowed you innately with, which is the right, the dignity of your story being yours. Of not disqualifying your story and thus you as invalid because of what I believe. That is justice. Justice begins with empathy. And if we cannot encounter our brothers and sisters with empathy, we have denied not our, but Jesus's direction for justice. Empathy blesses the others. You know, the scary, 
unknown others living on the other side of the island that probably want to do terrible things to our children and all that. Empathy blesses others in their otherness, even if it's unfamiliar, even if we think it's wrong. It says, empathy says, it's possible, it's beautiful, it's even holy to be who you are and to be how you are. And so it's time for us to go. Let me just name these practicals. What does scripture have to say about engaging one another with empathy? James chapter one, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to give, get angry. You must all be. Not some of you should think about, but this is a clear directive for living in unity. Engaging one another with empathy looks like giving others permission to share and then actually listening to what they say. I would suggest that in order to be one, in order to be one with other people, we must develop a deep understanding of who they are and how they became that person, of what they know and how they learned it of what they hold dear and why they hold it dear, of how they feel and why they feel that way. In order to be one with other people, we must develop that deep mutual understanding. We'll leave that up for a second. And maybe if that's of help to you, take a picture of it. That's something I think about because I need a lot of help with this. This is an area where God has been growing me at times, friends. I've, I, I'd love to say that I am like the empathizer in chief or that this practice of unity came cheap and easy for me. But at times over the last 10 years of this journey of leading a church called this, I've felt like the Grinch whose heart like grew three sizes that day. And I know that if this conversation goes down clunky, I am like the clunky conversationalist in chief. And some of you are looking at me and nodding, not because you're appreciating my self-deprecating humor, but because you've sat on the other side of the table in the clunky conversation with me. And I'm not permitting that or saying that that's good. I'm simply saying that unity requires all of us to be able to be in the place where we find ourselves and then come together submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus. It's his table or it's no table at all. Okay, so engaging one another with empathy. First Peter 3, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted. Here's what loving each other as brothers and sisters. Here's what oneness looks like according to the word of God here. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Engaging one another with empathy means approaching others willing to be wrong. Sounds easy. It's actually really hard when we're talking about our core files. 
Can you have a conversation with somebody about something about which you are passionate and persuaded and begin and end that conversation truthfully by saying, I might be wrong. Now, if we're talking about the seven or eight non-negotiable, die-on-the-hill absolutes of Orthodox Christianity, I will not entertain that conversation with you. If you're trying to tell me that salvation is not by grace through faith, I mean, I'll listen. And I'm learning how even with the advent of Alpha in my world and in our church, how to be like, huh, interesting. Those are new muscles for me. But when it comes to one another's experiences, normally we're not talking about the die on the hill, non-negotiable truths of faith. We're talking about one another's experiences and the beliefs, values, and norms which they have led to. Can you sit with another and say, I might be wrong. I think empathy requires it. That's what it means to keep our hearts tender, doesn't it? Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. If we really did that, if we really valued others above ourselves, it would follow logically that we valued their points of view higher than our own. To live that scripture, we have to be willing to be wrong, yeah? Okay, lastly, engaging one another with empathy looks like getting in the trenches with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans 12 teaches, and mourn with those who mourn. One scholar observed those who mourn usually do so because they've suffered a devastating loss or misfortune. They don't mourn for no reason, right? that can create some messy emotional landscapes. It's nearly impossible to tread into the lives of hurting people without getting our hands dirty. The urge to stay out of the mess, to send our thoughts and prayers from a safe distance, it can be hard to resist. But that's not what empathy is. That's not what God called us to do. If we're willing to reserve judgment and entrust that to Jesus to sort out what's right and what's wrong in our sisters and brothers' personal ideology and simply to hear that they say, another in our family says, I am hurting now. And to mourn with them, to hurt with them. I saw such beautiful expressions of that empathy in this family last year. So many of you went the extra mile, went out of your way to care for those brothers and sisters in our church family with disabilities who were extra encumbered and vulnerable in the COVID year. To show love and create community for the elderly who are mostly locked away at home here in our own church family and in the city around us. It was beautiful. So many of you, many of you like me who maybe didn't spend most of your life even thinking about these things, 
engaged in the, the groups around the Be the Bridge material, seeking to understand first where someone else is coming from and what it means as Jesus' ambassador to be a bridge across racial divides. Such beautiful expressions of this. So I'm not telling you this to say, shame on you, get your act together, and let's start being the church God's called us to be. I'm telling you this to say, look at who you are. In the midst of this painful and broken year, look what the Lord has done. Look around at the church family you're a part of. Imperfect, immature to be sure. I mean, we're barely adolescents as an organization. We're like in that stage where the voice is cracking and the feet are huge, but the bodies are still little. We're like that. We're like middle schoolers as an organization. There's plenty of ways that we're still growing up. And I'm not saying this to hold ourselves up and say, how about us on Vision Sunday? I'm telling you what I see when I look at you, what I see when I sit down and talk with you, when we share meals together with you, Mari and I, what I hear is beautiful, imperfect, redeemed versions of Jesus's church. Let's not grow weary being who God has asked us to be and doing what he has set before us. This is what it means to come to the table of the Lord together. Friends, this is what it means to be us, amen? Will you stand with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the ways that each of us has walked sacrificially in order to know you, gone low in order to be brought high lost our lives to find them. Lord, you are doing beautiful redemption work. And first, thank you. Thank you for saving wretches like us. Thank you for not growing tired or weary. Lord Jesus, would you help us to be one? I just pray for my friends and me what you prayed for us all those centuries ago. Would you make us one? as you and the Father are one. Would you lead us into such perfect unity, such sacrificial, humble, life-losing, Christ-exalting unity that the world would look on in their time of trial and see the gospel in living color, that the world would know how much you love them. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. It's time for us to worship and then go, but I want to tell you one more thing really quickly. And this is more me to you. It's not from the word of God. I am more aware than all of you at how delicate what I'm saying is and how imperfect I am to say it unqualified and inadequately, how inadequately I'm saying it. And let me be the first to do this among us. I might be wrong. I might've gotten it wrong and I might've said it wrong. And I'm willing to be wrong. As it turns out, this job I do on Sunday, I also do throughout the week. And I would love to hear from you. I'm not saying, oh, if you got gripes, send them to George. I mean, I do like to say that because it's funny to me, but I'm, I'm seriously saying if this lands sideways with you, 
would you, I'm a human, I'm a brother in the family. Would you do me the honor of just like shooting me an email or I mean, giving it to God. And if you wanna talk about it, I don't have to, but I'd talk with me about it before you talk with your friends about it and form the Rob's a jerk small group or, you know, leave the church because I tread on delicate ground. I mean, if you wanna leave the church, leave the church, I'm not, it's like the Godfather where you try to leave and you wake up with a horse head in your bed or something, leave if you want. But I'm just saying, would you do for me what Jesus asked us to do for one another? And if this is hard, I get it. Please know it was hard for me talking about it at this time. Would you talk with me about it? And then let's make every effort, make every effort to ensure the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. Amen? Man, I love you guys so much. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 